Good morning, Living Water. It's good to see you guys out again this morning as we've now, I guess, officially entered the fall. Is that correct? All right, summer's over, fall is here. Uh, today we want to take time to revisit a text that Pastor Mike preached to us last month that he's already expounded. Uh, we just want to highlight a couple of things and remind you of what he said uh, in today's message with the lens towards the topic that we're looking at today. So we're in 2 Timothy again, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And if you would mind standing for this brief reading of the word of God, these two verses. So we find in the ESV, uh, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The word of God. Let us bow for a brief word of prayer. Eternal Father in heaven, you have spoken in various times and various ways to your people in the past, but as Hebrews says in these last days, you have spoken through your Son, the incarnate Word. We pray that you will open the mouth of your fragile, human, insufficient servant this morning to proclaim the Word in the power of your Spirit. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will open the hearts of the hearers who are assembled here to receive your holy gospel and write on their hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. It is in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. For as long as I can remember, I have believed in a loving, heavenly mother. It's just a doctrine that makes sense to me. That, that is what I was always taught. It is a reflection of how I am viewed in the universe. And it has brought me a lot of comfort and joy knowing that I am beloved of heavenly parents. The sincere words of a woman with fair skin, blue eyes, and blonde hair on a YouTube commercial caught my attention last Sunday as I was preparing to get ready for church. But after hearing these words, I intently focused on the screen to pay attention to the speakers who were being featured in this commercial in light of what she had just said. The commercial continued. A father wearing black glasses with a military haircut went on to say, the Gospel Topics essay teaches that our heavenly parents are a divine pattern. So it matters a lot to me to get to know my heavenly mother better so that I can understand the other half of that pattern. She matters not just to me individually or to my little family. Our heavenly mother matters to the church at large. She isn't just a topic of discussion or a hidden footnote within all the other things. She is a cherished doctrine within the restored gospel, and she has always been. A mother with auburn hair and silver glasses read these words from the Gospel Topics essay. Prophets have taught, have taught that our heavenly parents 
work together for the salvation of the human family. A young mother with brown skin, brown eyes, and braids said, Elder Oaks is quoted in the gospel topics essay as saying, Our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. I love this. Jesus was a perfect example of showing us that if our desires and our aspiration is to be like our heavenly parents, we can achieve that. That we can become that. After a few other testimonies in the commercial, it came to a close by revisiting the young lady who was at the beginning of the commercial, and she said, this is a cherished doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I think it makes us unique. It is a distinctive trait of what we believe. Now, after watching that commercial, I couldn't help but think that one thing is not like the other. There's something different about what they believe than what I believe on a very foundational level. And far more importantly, it's something that the Bible does not teach what they believe. And it's this truth that recently got or caused a stir in the Church of God in Christ. If you're not familiar, at the end of August, the presiding bishop over the Kojic denomination, John Drew Sheard, announced a historic partnership between the Kojic Church and the Latter-day Saints. Now, what was interesting is that within a couple of days, the presiding bishop issued a follow-up video announcing that the partnership had been disbanded and he asked for forgiveness. Now, I don't know what the reason is. Perhaps some of the other bishops and some of the membership or others who had power within the denomination shared or expressed concerns that caused a turning in those events. Another bishop from the Kojic denomination that I watched, Bishop Wooden, stated this in response to that last uh, announcement that uh, the presiding bishop made as he gave thanks to the Lord. He said to his church, I'm going to heaven and I have sworn allegiance to God. I've not sworn allegiance to a fraternity. I've not sworn allegiance to the Masons. I've not sworn allegiance to any of them. I have lifted up my soul to the God of the Bible, and it's going to stay like that until I die, and then I'm going home to be with him. These two examples serve as a minute sampling of some of the reasons that the true church of Jesus Christ, which has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, must faithfully discharge her divinely ordained duty to preach Christ and to teach the word of God. Now, as one Christian YouTuber who was responding to this video and these turn of events within the Kojic Church and Concerns said, we must be careful not to allow pragmatism to overrule our theology or else we might find ourselves in inappropriate relationships. See, what we believe about God and how we live in response has eternal ramifications, especially what we believe about Jesus Christ. But don't take my word for it. Simply listen to Jesus' own words. Jesus said, you are from below. I am from above. 
You are from this world. I am not from this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus seemed to think that you believing the right things about him was tied or is tied to your and my eternal destiny. In another place, Jesus spoke these words. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father, father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In this text, Jesus says that he is to be honored in the exact same way that we honor God, the Father. See, as the church, we have the responsibility to preach Christ according to the scriptures to the world and to teach believers how to live under his kingdom rule before a watching world and a watching spiritual realm. Now, since we are to discharge these, we might say, privileges and duties, we might want to know or it might seem wise to know or have some inkling of what they entail. So when you hear the words preach or teach, what is it that comes to your mind? What image do you see formed in your mind? Are they the same thing or are they two things that are very distinct and different? Do they overlap in your mind? One uh, preacher, a pastor, in reflecting on this, shared his picture. And maybe this is what your picture looks like when you think about somebody preaching, or maybe it's what you grew up with or were exposed to in the in the past. He said, "Well, he said when I when I get the picture, a visual picture in my mind of a preacher, it's of a person who's up front. His his vocal cords are worn out from a raised voice. He's walking around the stage. He's sweating, and he's pulled out his handkerchief and he's wiping the sweat with a cloth." from his head as he energetically paces back and forth across the stage, taking deep breaths as he makes urgent pleas to the audience. And you can see it. It's right there in his eyes that he desperately wants his audience to latch on to what he's saying and be changed by it. Maybe you've seen a preacher like that, too. <laughs> now, normally, they're usually in a three-piece suit, but you know how. Now, the culture that I grew up in, when I was going there, there was this distinction made between preaching and teaching, and it kind of hinged around one thing because of the kind of culture that I was in. Some of you may be able to identify with this if you know something about uh, the black culture, uh, specifically in the churches that I was in in the South. The way that most people distinguished, at least in the laity or a way people talked about it, would have to do with what sometimes is referred to as tuning up or hooping or, or that kind of using of speech, right? And if, if you would tune up in your message, then you were a preacher. If you couldn't tune up, which usually meant you couldn't sing, like me, or you just chose not to because there were some who could tune up or because they could sing, but they just didn't do that because they didn't like to do it in their style, then you were automatically put into the category of a teacher of the word of God. So if you could hoop, you were a preacher. <laughs> but if you couldn't, then you had to be a teacher. 
No options there. No middle ground. But what did preaching and teaching look like for Jesus? His apostles and those first Christians during the first century. Pastor Joss Bust reminds us of some of the things that we find as I read through the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Some of these kind of images that come up, and I'll give you the definitions from there that he included in his article. But preaching mainly in the first century was this idea of proclamation. If you put up the definition of preach on the screen for me, it's the definition for the word that's behind the English gloss there used in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, which we're going to look at here briefly in a moment as I recall it to mind. And it is to act as a herald and make an official announcement to proclaim aloud to make a public declaration. So the picture here is really of one who is a herald that goes out before a king to announce a decree that a king has made or that the king, uh, a new king has been installed. So it's the idea of someone who comes into towns and travels between villages and they gather the people together to listen, to read out the decree or the announcement that a new king has been born, which has impact on your life. And they're not trying to explain things. They're just announcing what has happened and what this means for you. And they call you to whatever action that this new kingdom that is being established requires of you. And they speak with the authority of the king. That's the kind of concept of what preaching was in the New Testament. Now, there are a variety of other words that the New Testament uses, but here this one main word that we're focusing on today had this idea that they just heralded the truth. They went out and just announced what God had done and what this new reign that had started and that the new king had been announced and that this reign had some implications for your life and you then needed to respond in a proper way to this new rule that had just been announced. Teaching, on the other hand, though also getting at truth, was the idea of instruction. Here, the, the Greek word that is used here found uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, uh, if you'll put it up, the definition there, to tell someone what to do, to instruct, to provide instruction in a formal setting. So the idea of teaching wasn't so much heralding a, a, the reign of a king or saying a new decree to the king and issue. It's something that you needed to know and to be announced. It's more this idea of, of discipleship orientation. It's, it's instructing. It's helping people know how to live in this way that God desires for people to know. So we often would put this in a form of a, a classroom type setting. It's where knowledge is being imparted. Perhaps uh, after the, the, the scriptures have been explained, questions are being asked back and forth and the, the teacher's clarifying and it's explaining what's going on and seeking to make sure that the hearers understand the truth that has just been explained. Teaching, so preaching, proclamation, teaching, instruction. Now, the audiences for preachers and teaching were also in the New Testament, at least in the first century era, were often different. Not all times exclusively, but, but mostly in, in their focus. Preaching was mainly focused directly outwards toward those who were still lost in their sins, mainly unbelievers. It mainly took place anywhere in an open area. Sometimes, as we look throughout the New Testament, if you look at it, where it is, the location it happens, there are occasions when it happens in a synagogue or in homes where the church met at, as we see here, in, as Paul instructs Timothy to do. And when we look at the preaching of Jesus, we see that he traveled from town to town, and this was the very purpose which, which he was sent into the world, was to preach the gospel of the kingdom. 
And this is kind of what the main church, early church focused on. They, they focused on reaching those outside the church by preaching the gospel. So they went into the world to proclaim this message about what God had done and accomplished in Christ Jesus and that the true king had actually come. There was another gospel that had already been proclaimed before Jesus, and that was Caesar's gospel that was already in the world. And Jesus' gospels came along to challenge that, that he was saying that he was the true God, the true Savior, and he was the one who was bringing true peace unlike Caesar had done. We might today think of examples like Billy Graham might be a good example of who we might think of as someone proclaiming the gospel. That would be preaching. What was Jesus' message? Do you remember it? He went around, he announced, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The apostles proclaimed the same message but announced the king as well by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and calling people to respond to the king that had just been installed by his birth, by his death, and by his resurrection. And Paul doesn't leave us clueless as to what this response is. He says it in the book of Acts. He says, testifying both to Jews and to, and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the two God-ordained responses, faith, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the gospel is proclaimed, the announcement of what God has done in Christ, the king has arrived and his kingdom is present and you need to respond to it. Teaching, on the other hand, often happened in, as we see in the New Testament, in synagogues at the time because that was the established places of meeting. And as Paul's missionary journey because of his philosophy to the Jew first and then to the, to the Greek or to the Gentiles where he started. But we also see it happening in the homes where the church met during the first century. Sometimes, as Paul in one place talks about in the hall of Tyrannus, meeting there and teaching. And teaching was mainly focused on, not exclusively, but mainly focused on helping believers in Christ understand the gospel, understand the implications of what the gospel meant for their lives now that they were living in this new area and how they were to now live as followers of Jesus Christ. Teaching was mainly focused on the church. And so when we look at Jesus' teaching, we see as we can sum it up this way, it was on how one is to order our life in light of the reality of God and one's neighbor. So the late R.C. Sproul pressed this point home about teaching and some comments that I'm going to share with you in a moment. He had been asked to do a lecture on Martin Luther and the importance of teaching in the church and the importance of that role in the life of the minister of the gospel. And this is what R.C. Sproul had to say, the late R.C. Sproul, who has gone on to now, I believe, to be with the Lord. The concept that the primary task of the minister is to teach is all but lost in the church today. When we call ministers to our churches, we often look for these men to be adept administrators, skilled fundraisers, and good organizers. Surely, sure we want them to know some theology and the Bible, but we don't make it a priority that these people be equipped to teach the congregation the things of God. Administrative tasks are seen as more important. Now, this is not the model that Jesus himself commended. You remember that encounter that Jesus had with Peter after the resurrection? We call it the pastorate because ministers are called to care for the sheep of Christ. Pastors are Christ's under-shepherds, and what shepherd would so neglect his sheep that he would never take time or trouble to feed them? 
the feeding of our Lord's sheep comes principally through teaching. See, the church is called by God and by Christ to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ to the world and to teach disciples to obey all that Jesus has commanded. That is what we are called to do. Now, why should the church be committed to preaching and teaching? From the text, I want to offer four brief reasons why the church should be committed to this, to these activities of preaching Christ to the world and teaching believers how to live under Christ's rule in the few moments we have remaining. So we go back to First Timothy, I mean Second Timothy chapter four, verse one, and now we find the first reading, first uh, reason there in the text. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So what Paul says in this text that he presses upon Timothy is that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. And this is the reason that men and women need to repent. Paul, when he was in Athens, said as much. Let me share that with you. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The reason that people, we need to share the gospel and preach it is because Christ is coming to judge the world and people need to repent to be ready for that appearance of Christ. Scholar Walter Liefeld helps us understand these future judgments, this future time of judgment when he writes these words. He says, we gather from various biblical texts about future judgment that this is going to be a complex event. Not only will there be a comprehensive judgment before the great white throne resulting in eternal life or death, but our lives as servants of the Lord will be evaluated before the judgment seat of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, another text dealing with future evaluation of our work, Paul specifically focuses on how each one has contributed to the growth of the church. And in light of all of this, our lives, therefore, should be lived with a constant eye to the future primarily on the appearing of Christ. See, the Bible teaches that God is impartial, that Christ is impartial in his judgment, and he is fair when he judges. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't take bribes, and he's going to judge every man and woman according to his works. That's a theme that's in the Old Testament. It's a theme that is prominent in the New Testament, it's, you're going to be judged. I'm going to be judged based on what we have done, whether that be good or evil done in the body. Now, I know perhaps for some of you, you're starting to think, well, wait a minute. I thought that if I have faith in Christ, I don't have to worry about judgment. So am I in trouble on the day of judgment? Am I going to be maybe cast out on the, on the last day? So how is it that I can have faith in Jesus and yet Jesus is going to judge me based on my works? 
Because if I think about my life, there are some things I don't want to be judged on. So there are a variety of answers to this. Most scholars recognize the tension in the New Testament, and they don't deny that it's there because final judgment is based on works. We just can't get around it. That's what the text says. Jesus says it. The apostles say it. The Old Testament says it. It's just there in the text. So how do we square these two things together? Dr. Schreiner offers a plausible solution to this. He says this. Such works are not, ba are not the basis of being found in the book of life, but constitute the necessary evidence of belonging to God. He says it's not works that get you into the book of life. That would be faith in Jesus Christ. But the works prove that you actually belong to God or you don't. So what our works do is on the day when God is judging fairly and evaluating all things and others are watching the heavenly assembly and others are looking on the evidence will testify one way or another because there are some people who have claimed to be attached to Jesus we might know some of them but they're not really genuine believers but we wouldn't be able to tell the difference but on the day when Christ judges he's going to separate genuine believers from those who have simply proclaimed to be followers of Christ and our works will prove whether or not our faith was genuine. But Paul goes also on to say something else. He says not only is God coming to judge the living and the dead, so that doesn't leave anybody out. Everybody's going to be judged. But he says there's a kingdom coming as well. For this, we must draw back to the vision of King Nebuchadnezzar so many years ago when he saw a vision of a statue of world powers that were going to come one after another. Then there was a stone that was carved out of a mountain without hands, and that stone was thrown at the base of the foot of the statue, which represented human government and human power. And that crushed the statue, and then that stone grew to encompass the entire earth. We now know because of Jesus Christ that the person of that stone, who it is, is Christ and his kingdom. And when he arrives, he is going to crush all human government. He's going to dismantle all forms of human government to establish his own government in their places on that day. We might like various forms of government, but Christ has another form of government that is going to replace all the ones that currently exist in the world. So the question then behooves us to be asked, which I ask myself, and perhaps you ought to ask to yourself, if Christ were to appear this afternoon, if he were to show up tomorrow, are you ready to be judged by him? I don't want to leave you without some encouragement if you're a believer today because the scripture does it. If you're a believer, you have faith in Jesus Christ and you're seeking to work out your faith through love, then hear what St. John says to you. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, you abide in love, then you can have confidence when Christ appears. 
and you, like Paul, can love his appearance. We find the second reason in verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul goes on to say, in light of this reality of, of Christ coming to judge the world, and he is a impartial judge and a, a fair judge to judge people according to the, the evidence that their life produces, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Here what that means simply is do it when it's convenient and do it when it's not convenient. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all complete patience and teaching. What we get here from the context, which Pastor Mike has already explained, I'm just simply reminding you of what he's already taught. Preaching and teaching help the church to confront and correct wrong doctrine. That's primarily Paul's focus here in this text as he's teaching him to correct what is wrong in the church at Ephesus. Paul had been admonishing Timothy to deal with those who are teaching false doctrine by preaching the gospel accurately and teaching the scriptures to the people. Remember in chapter 3, right before this, he talks about what the scriptures are useful for, and these are the kinds of things that scripture is to be used for and can help him in being able to discharge his duty. Now, Paul lays out the method with these words. He says, look, you've got to confront the false teachers. Those who, re who are unrepentant, you've got to rebuke them, and then those who do repent, you want to encourage them. Now, according to this letter, we find out the kind of false teaching that was going on. Paul says some were saying that the resurrection had already happened, thus disturbing the faith of some within the church. He said, you got to correct that. He said others were saying, hey, listen, you ought not get married. And Paul said, you got to correct that. And some were saying you shouldn't eat foods and stuff like that, some form of asceticism. And he said, you got to correct that. And Paul says the scriptures are the way to do that. Well, now, just in case you think that that was something that happened in the first century, we still see those kinds of ideas, uh, these wrong, wrong or errant kind of things still pop up in our world today, sometimes in the church and sometimes outside the church would necessitate us preaching Christ to the world and teaching believers what it is that they need to know. So at the beginning of last month in August, the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, hosted a free event which they called Plant Day. Now, Evan and I, we were a little bit suspicious about this event. So I asked Evan, I was like, Evan, you know, I don't want to get up there and say something that's not really true. This is one of those satirical sites, and, you know, you get up there and find out they were just making a joke. So Evan put on his research cap, and, you know, Evan is a good researcher. <laughs> and he said, no, brother, it's the real deal. Now, you might think that, well, plant day. I mean, how much harm could plant day be for some children? But it wasn't until you got to reading down in the activities of what they wanted to do did it start to cause concern at the Walker Art Museum there in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, now I know you're gonna, this is going to sound far-fetched, but this is actually what they were trying to do. They said two of the activities for the kids that were free were to teach people how to summon demons and to empathize with demons. Now, I know you probably don't believe that's true, so let me just quote to you from the website. At August free first Saturday, Brooklyn-based artist Tamir Atun, and they give her pronouns for her, she, they, will present Lilith, some of you will know who Lilith is, the empathetic demon. 
The performance is inspired by Lilith, an aerial spirit demon with origins in Sumerian, Akkadian, and Judaic mythology. Families are invited to create a vessel to trap the demon that knows them best, perhaps the demon of overthinking, and then participate in a playful ceremony to summon and befriend their demon. Demons have a bad reputation, but maybe we're just not very good at getting to know them. Do you have a demon that creeps into your thoughts? Maybe the demon of overthinking or the demon of not trusting your gut. Work with visiting artists to Maritune to design a vessel for holding the demon you know best. Text summon to, and I'm not going to give you the phone number. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. To join Lydia's text group and receive occasional messages from the empathetic demon. Now, you might think that this is somebody out there on the fringes of society, but you have to look at her qualifications. She's highly degreed with degrees from Yale. She teaches at Columbia University. Right? She knows what she's doing, and she's highly awarded and accomplished in her field, and yet she's teaching people how to summon demons. Brothers and sisters, the church needs to preach Christ and to teach the word of God. It wasn't just true in the first century. It's still true in the 21st century. We find the third reason in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul writes there, and we've covered this before, and I'll just remind you of it when we did the series on Corinthians, and it's been a, a, a few years since we did it. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What Paul says here, and it's said it many times, repeated throughout the New Testament, is that God saves people through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to see people freed from demons. We want to see people freed from all manner of things that capture, as Correll prayed in her prayer earlier, the only way we're going to see people have their sins forgiven by God and be free for demonic influence, the power of Satan, and other things that trap humans is to preach Christ. It's the only means by which God makes an old person a new creation. So we must preach the gospel to them. And most often that means that we've got to leave the walls of this building and go out to the world where the sinners are to share Christ with them. Because sadly... We're in a different culture now. People don't always want to come to the church to hear the gospel because they don't believe or trust us anymore. We've got to go where they are and tell them about Jesus. Finally, the last reason we run across comes out in First uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. As I close my time out. Him we proclaim everyone, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, and Peter says it as well, that God matures believers through the teaching of the word of God. See, believers hear the word of God taught and which produces then faith in us, and it renews our mind in the ways of God so that we not only know God's will, but do it. And if we want to see people grow as, as Peter encourages us to do in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we have to teach the word. And as Peter says, the word is the milk by which we grow into mature disciples. Now, you might ask, well, what does a mature disciple look like? 
That disciple looks like his teacher, Jesus Christ. The importance of, church, of the church being committed to preaching Christ and teaching the word of God was pressed home for me about three weeks ago, as some of you know. Three weeks ago on Friday evening while I was assembling furniture in my son's room, I received a call from a cousin who I have not spoken to in many years. Now, that generally means that if you get a call from a relative that you've not heard from in years, something really good has happened or something really bad has happened. So he called me on the phone and he said, hey, man, listen, I just called to tell you because my daughter who works in the school district found out that your best friend in Houston has died. Now, of course, I didn't want to believe it. It was shocking to hear that news. So I thanked him for sharing it with me. Thank you that he had called me to let me know, didn't leave me in the dark to find out about what had happened. Now, because I didn't, be I didn't want to believe it, because I thought, well, maybe he's got the wrong person in mind, because this can't be true. So I said, you know what, the best way to resolve this is to call my best friend's phone, who I just talked to last Thursday, and see what's really going on. So I called the phone, but he didn't pick up. His father picked up the phone, and in that moment, I knew that what my cousin had said was true. I went back to his Facebook page, and I saw that on August 31st, somewhere around 9.29 p.m., he had posted on Facebook, so he was still alive. Somewhere between that post at 9.29 p.m. on August 31st and September 1st that morning when his father found him in his bed, he had slipped away into eternity. My friend was a, a high school math teacher. He taught Algebra one, Algebra two, Geometry, and some other courses. And he had been three weeks in school at the time. He had over 200 students that he was caring for. He was tutoring various students. He was in the process of trying to get his book, his fantasy book that he had written published. He was working with another friend on trying to get his clothing line uh, that he had designed, put in his boutique to sell there in his boutique. And he, had, he was heavily involved in his church. He was serving with the young adult ministry, and he was a deacon in the church. But all of that came to a screeching halt when God called him from eternity. Because he knew about the brevity of life and the uncertainty of a life, he would often say to others who were believers, who professed believers and said things that didn't seem to be consistent with their belief, he would look them in the eye and he would say to them, you know you're saved, right? Brothers and sisters, what this has taught me and reminded me of is that we do not know how much time we have on planet Earth. I don't know if you recall that Pastor Mike had said, some of you are not going to make it to the end of this year. Now, at that time when Pastor Mike said that, I didn't realize that just a week later that my best friend would be one of those people that Pastor Mike had said. Now, I don't know. Pastor Mike might be a prophet. But one thing is clear, we don't know how much time we have and we don't know how much time other people have. And thus, it behooves us to preach Christ to those who don't know him and to teach believers how they ought to live so that they are ready to meet Jesus Christ. I'm reminded, brothers and sisters, of the words that Jesus spoke at Lazarus' grave to the sisters who were there weeping when he said to them as he got ready to raise Lazarus, he says, I 
am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Then he looked at them and he said, do you believe this? Brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to preach Christ and teach believers how to live in light of his reign. Today we have the privilege of taking communion. Let me pray for the elements and then I'll give the instructions so that we can share in the Lord's table. We thank you, our Father, for the life which you have made known to us by Jesus, your Son, by whom you have made all things, and you take care of the whole world. You sent him to become a man for our salvation. You allowed him to suffer and to die. You raised him, glorified him, and have set him at your right hand. And in him you have promised the resurrection from the dead. We give thanks to you also for his precious blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for us. For his body, as he gave it, as appointed said that Paul said that we are to proclaim his death until he comes. We ask you now, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to bless and sanctify the bread to the souls of those who are about to receive it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of your son to witness to you, O Lord, and that we're willing to take upon ourselves the name of your son and always remember him and to keep the commandments that he has given us. And we ask you in the name of your son, Jesus, to bless and sanctify the cup to the souls of those who are about to receive it, that we may drink it in remembrance of the blood which Jesus Christ has shed for us, that we may be a witness to you, our God, and that we always remember Christ and what he has done for us, and that we may, when prompted by the Spirit, yield to his direction in our lives. But through Christ, glory is to be given to you forever. We pray these things in his name. Amen.